Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Jeff Singer. I'm a surgeon, and I'm also a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. And I want to wish everyone a happy repeal day. A lot of people may not know this, but today is the anniversary of the repeal of alcohol prohibition in 1933. So what more fitting day to discuss, <laughs> to discuss not just alcohol, but other addictive substances and activities that still remain prohibited. Uh, public policy approaches toward the non-medical use of licit and illicit drugs has evolved over the years. Once considered a moral, a vice or moral failing, substance use disorder, more widely referred to as addiction, is now largely regarded as a disease. Yet moralization still colors the belief that non-medical substance use is risky and wrong behavior that can lead to one to contract the, the disease of addiction. One thing upon which all experts agree is the definition of addiction, compulsive use of a substance or engagement in an activity despite negative consequences. Now the disease model of drug addiction takes the view that it is the drug, that the addict's brain has been hijacked, that the addict has lost autonomy and self-control and is effectively a zombie controlled by the drug. It's this frightening perception of the risks involved with non-medical drug use that informs much of modern public policy leading to policies that criminalize drug use and treat addiction with punishment and co coerced treatment. Yet many scholars and experts have an entirely different view of addiction and non-medical drug use. Some view non-medical use as a natural activity that can be personally rewarding and gratifying. They reject the disease model of addiction where the drug hijacks the brain and instead they consider it a form of a learning disorder in which compulsive behavior is in effect an automatized means of coping with stress triggers. In other words, they think it isn't the drug. A more sophisticated and nuanced understanding of substance use and addiction will produce, hopefully, more enlightened public policy. I'm honored to have with us this afternoon a distinguished group of experts who will discuss, among other things, what is addiction? Is it the drug? Is your brain hijacked? Or is an addict still able to control and make choices? What about non-substance addictions like gambling addiction or compulsive buying behavior or hypersexual disorder or overeating? And what about the majority of adults who use drugs recreationally, illicit drugs, and don't become addicted? What about so-called functioning addicts? Why are some addictions stigmatized, they're evil, while others are not viewed in as bad a light? What are the racial origins of such viewpoints and overtones? Uh, a large number of addicts recover on their own without treatment at all by the time they reach their 30s. Also, what's the better approach to treating addiction? Uh, abstinence or moderation and harm reduction? And how much of the harm arising from non-medical use of drugs is actually a direct result of prohibition? With me, uh, from your left to right, are Jacob Sullum, senior editor of Reason Magazine and author of the book, Saying Yes in Defense of Drug Use. Dr. Stanton Peel, psychologist and addiction therapist, author of many books, including The Meaning of Addiction, and co-author of Love and Addiction, and now most recently, Outgrowing Addiction, which, by the way, is on sale outside this door. Dr. Joyce Lynn Elders, former Surgeon General of the United States and Professor Emerita of Pediatrics at the University of Arkansas School of Medicine. Dr. Mitch Earlywine, Professor of Psychology and Director of the Habits and Lifestyles Laboratory at the State University of New York in Albany and Dr. Suzanne Sisley, uh, 
psychiatrist and internal medicine specialist and president and principal investigator of Scotts Scottsdale Research Institute in Scottsdale, Arizona. So with that, uh, let, let's start going from left to right and get some opening remarks from each of our guests. Jacob? <clears throat> Stage left or... Uh... Uh, okay, so I get, I, the, the essence of my argument is that uh, the drug use is not inherently moral or immoral. That there's a difference between use and abuse, um, and that it depends on the context of the use and the consequences. Um, and this is a, you know, these distinctions are, are, are readily grasped by most people when it comes to alcohol, which is a legal drug uh, that nevertheless poses a variety of different, uh, a variety of hazards. Um, and people understand that there are moderate drinkers and there are alcoholics. They understand that there are alcoholics who hurt only themselves by damaging their health and dying prematurely, and there are alcoholics who you know, beat their spouses or drive drunk and, and run over uh, children in the streets and that sort of thing. Um, but when it comes to illegal drugs, the government's tendency is to say any use of an illegal drug is abuse by definition. And so we're living in an interesting time right now where marijuana is moving out of the category of, of illicit drugs into the category of, of, of legal drugs, and we are going to have to start to apply. <laughs> Everyone's going to have to start to apply these distinctions that we've long applied to alcohol uh, to cannabis as well. So we distinguish between cannabis users who you know, relax uh, on the weekend or at the end of the day uh, with a little, with a little bit, uh, vaping a little bit or have an edible from people who are stoned all the time and never accomplish anything, who, who may not actually harm anyone, there might, but you might have somebody who drives stoned and thereby endangers other people. So these same kind of distinctions apply. You go to work stoned and, you, and therefore you are cheating your employer uh, versus only doing it in your, in your time off. That's, you know, these kinds of uh, distinctions we're very used to applying when it comes to alcohol. So I think that will come more or less naturally as uh, people understand that marijuana is now a legal drug. Um, wanted to mention something about addiction. The way Jeff is defining it, which is which a, widely, it's a, a widely accepted definition, includes the idea of negative consequences. But maybe it shouldn't. Maybe we should think of addiction in the way it has historically been viewed as being a strong attachment, a hard-to-break habit, not necessarily a bad thing. It can be bad. And if it is bad, uh, there are some addictions that are disastrous and some addictions that are only mildly bad. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Uh, many people who drink coffee every day are addicted to coffee. They have trouble giving it up. They may even have withdrawal symptoms when they stop uh, drinking coffee. But it's not a big deal for the most part. It doesn't have serious health effects. You can get it readily almost anywhere. Uh, so there's, that's an example of an addiction that, that I think is a real addiction, but doesn't really have very serious consequences. Similarly, with nicotine, it makes a big difference whether you get your nicotine by smoking cigarettes, which, which poses all sorts of health hazards and may uh, you know, cause premature death, versus uh, vaping it or you know, from other, other nicotine sources like patches or gum, which don't have those same hazards of you know, lighting something on fire and inhaling the smoke. Right? Uh, that makes a huge difference in terms of health effects. So the way, even though these are both addictions, somebody who vapes every day is just as addicted as somebody who smokes every day. The person who vapes every, every day has an addiction that has far less serious consequences for them and for the people around them uh, in, terms of, in terms of health effects. Um, so we may even be able to think of, of uh, uh, one other example uh, is with opioids. 
somebody may have an opioid habit that entails taking control doses every day of a legally produced opioid where he knows what he's getting. And if he maintains himself on those doses for decades, he can go without any serious health consequences. But if you take that same person and throw him into a black market where he's buying opioids and he has no idea what he's getting, uh, you will, you will uh, vastly increase the risks he faces because potency is highly variable. And when you, when you buy a given powder or pill, you don't really know what you're getting. And as we're seeing with the shift from heroin to fentanyl, that only magnifies the variability and makes those drugs even more dangerous. So those are both addictions, but one is far more hazardous than the other. And so I hope we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, distinctions like those. Stanton? Well, I uh, tend to argue things 40 years in advance. So I'm going to be uh, uh, even opposed in some ways to some of my fellow panelists. I wrote Love and Addiction with Archie Brodsky in 1975. And in 2013, the American Psychiatric Association and DSM-5 declared that non-drug activities could be addictive. And so it's assumed I'll win the Nobel Prize. I, everybody understands that. Okay. And where I'm going currently is the disease theory of addiction is ostensibly, demonstrably, not only incorrect and wrong, but destructive. I'm beyond that argument, and I'm at the point where I'm wondering why is it still so successfully spread? Not only have no, has no official body backed down on it, but it's spread to the harm reduction movement. So let me start historically. In 1997, Alan Leshner, the head of the NIDA, declared that addiction is a brain disease, and it matters. Uh, let me leap. The CDC has calculated that between 1999 and 2017, 700,000 people died. They call it drug overdose. Um, everything you believe about drugs and addiction is wrong. There's no such thing as overdose. Perhaps Jacob will explain that later. I but drug-related deaths. And it's, of course, gone higher since then. Now, when they discovered the microbe that caused tuberculosis, they eliminated tuberculosis. When they created the polio vaccine, they eliminated polio. The brain disease model of addiction has the incredible attribute of accelerating and expanding the disease that it is identified, and yet of increasingly and being more widely accepted. Isn't that a remarkable thing? How does that happen? I'll give you a brief history. In 2003, um, Leshner, who's kind of low-key, was replaced by Nora Volko, who's a worldwide proselytizer. In 2007, she sponsored HBO series on addiction, which said it's a brain disease, and which was made into a school curriculum. Um, now, during this period, 700,000 people have died. From 1999 to 2017, uh, drug-related deaths increased 600%. In the period from 2013 to 2017, they increased 350%. Why did they increase so much between 2013 and 2017? I'm asking you. 
everybody in America has the same answer. Oh, God, I'm in the libertarian group. <laughs> Everybody says because of the spread of pharmaceutical painkillers, between 2013 and 2017, prescriptions for pharmaceutical painkillers declined radically. But your answer is only partly of where I'm headed. In 2016, concerned that not enough people understood that addiction is a brain disease, um, one of Dr. Elder's successors, Vivek Murthy, created a national campaign to present the idea that people must know that addiction is a brain disease. And just to keep going, in 2018, um, uh, the uh, science program NOVA did a series on addiction as a brain disease, which is now in the school system. People learn that addiction is a brain disease now like Newtonian physics. Um, and that idea spread to the drug reform movement. The single thing that Norovoco is most pushing is medication-assisted treatment, which is endorsed by the Drug Policy Alliance and all drug policy reformers. And there's some demonstrations that in a controlled environment, you can reduce uh, deaths due to uh, by using that. However, um, apply, in 2018, there was a 4% decline in deaths. And we are now spreading naloxone, which is a drug reversal impact. And we're also spreading, along with reducing uh, prescriptions, MAT. Over the last several years, and 18 states uh, uh, found increased deaths in 2018. Over the last several years, Missouri has received $65 million in federal grants to address the opioid crisis. Rachel Winograd, a, a, a researcher, says, we've expanded on, we've focused on expanding access to medication-assisted treatment. $65 million for a state like Missouri. Remember when we all said, what we need to replace is drug interdiction with education and treatment. And we have replaced education. School systems tell everybody it's a brain disease. We've done so well at that. And now we're expanding treatment beyond belief. $65 million, multiply that by 50. That's a big number, isn't it? Drug deaths increased by 20% in Missouri. The fact that the numbers didn't go down and that people were dying at an even higher rate was devastating. But nobody, nobody, the, and drug, if you look at the DPA website, I have a piece here, uh, addiction as disease proponents are the equivalent global climate change deniers, despite the asymptotically expanding death rate. More and more people have endorsed the, essentially the disease model. And, and why are they do? By the way, has anybody in this room ever taken a painkiller? Could you raise your hand, please? 
What's the next question? <laughs> <laughs> you want me to do it? How, ma how many of you had trouble, once the pain was gone, had trouble stopping using the drug or, or, or found that it disrupted your life in some way? Look around. The reason, why are they constantly marketing disease of addiction idea? When I go home on the train to New Jersey, there's a sign, one of three people who use um, opioid prescriptions will become addicted. Everybody in this room has used an opioid painkiller, and not one person reports having trouble desisting. What's remarkable is, they have to constantly market the idea of addiction as a disease because it's not true. Everybody in this room knows it's not true. And yet, everybody in this room more or less believes it. You all believe that, well, if you take an opioid regularly, you'll be addicted. Everybody believes that. It's true, is it? The guy with the glasses. Isn't it true? Isn't it? If people take opioids regularly, they have to become addicted. Isn't that true? Everybody, don't let me embarrass you. It's uh, just a bad habit I have. Let me ask a separate question. By the way, as one of the uh, lone uh, non-psychological people on this panel, I'm a surgeon. Uh, I could tell you why it, the disease model works uh, has has kind of so much penetrated my profession. It's because that's kind of the way we've been trained to approach everything. Everything that we, we deal with is either a, a disease that we need to treat or an injury that we need to fix. And so we've come to look at the, the uh, addictive drugs sort of like in the same way you'd look at a bacterium that would enter your body and give you an infection. It's entered you, it's attacked you. And, so it's, kind of, it's just kind of a natural way that physicians have learned to, to think about things. Dr. Elders, I'd like to hear what you have to say. Well, I'm the one person on this panel. I'm not a, an addiction specialist, and I know very little about addiction, but I am concerned about people in general and about public health. As you know, I was a, your, your surgeon general for a while and health director at Arkansas. And I, am, I have been concerned, and what my, our problem related to drug use and has been more related to the fact that it causes harm for some people, maybe a, only a small percent. When we think about it, we know that out of the 310 million people in America, 67 million of them use, have some drug use. Or, or, well, you know, maybe the alcohol or something, drug use. Out of that uh, number, we have a certain number, 27 million of them have consequences. You know, out of the 67 million who use, only about 27 million suffer any, you know, 27 million have consequences. So we are saying 24% of America use some type of drug. About 10, 8 or 10% of them have um, some type, if you will, you know, have maybe some, it causes some harm or consequences to, them, to their families, their communities. Maybe they spend all their money, and maybe they don't do any harm, but they spend all their money and they don't feed their families. Or they get drunk and they 
hit somebody or you know, there are some it causes severe harm and many uh, and of course we cause it a severe addiction or severe comes when they can't stop you know they want to stop I don't know anyone who has used drugs to start using and and who was unable to stop who wished they couldn't I had a son who had trouble with addiction and heaven knows we spent lots of money and you know he had good positions and he had you know a good what I thought was a good education but he still and he had went to what was considered some of the best treatment centers and well he did stop for 14 or 15 years but it's a chronic relapsing disease and then you know things got bad he may have gotten stressed again and I, I think he relapsed. I think he's doing okay now, I, but you know, sometimes, it, well, it's hard for parents to tell, and we parents stay in denial half the time, so, so, I, so, so I can't, uh, but, but anyway, but we, as far as I'm concerned, I, didn't, I never felt he wanted to be addicted, wanted to have problems, and so I have to go, I'm very concerned, what I really feel very strongly about, if we can do what, use the public health model, if we will, and try and reduce harm. Yeah, that's what we do for most, since they've said we can't call it a disease, whatever, I don't care what we call it. It causes a problem in our society, and I feel that we have a major crisis, if you will. I don't know if it's a crisis even, but it's causing <coughs> a lot of harm in our society. <coughs> well, I can have some water. And, and it's very expensive. It's very detrimental to families, communities, to our society. And thanks. And, and, and here we have. So I think the role of public health, if you will, is to try and reduce harm or harm reduction. So if there's a person who really needs to use drugs or want to use drugs, I feel we need to try and reduce the number of drugs he's using, or reduce, or not number, reduce the amount of drugs he's using and try and reduce harm. If, and reduce not only the harm that he causes to himself, but a harm that he causes to the community. And I think there have been a few, uh, some studies who said, like the, the people who inject drugs, inject drugs. I think the needle exchange program has been a beneficial, I think there are some studies who say that it's a beneficial program. That is, they use, you, if they go regularly, you know, obviously if you're on a needle exchange and if you go regular to get the needles and all that, well, that's gonna mean that you're, you have to be somewhat committed in order to go, go regularly. So, but, 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 but it, it's, I think it's been shown, it's certainly for HIV, it reduces the transmission of HIV because now rather than using dirty needles, exchanging needles with people who may have HIV, they're getting clean needles. They, it, it does not increase crime. It reduces the spread of syringes and needles in parks. It reduces the amount of hepatitis, uh, hepatitis and other viral infections. So 
to me, that's a good thing. And it, it, you know, it may not be, we may not be taking them off drugs, but if we can reduce the harm that it causes to the person and to society, that to me represents what I would call a very good thing. The other thing I think that we feel that the harm, harm reduction does, it uses, usually keeps the patient in treatment. They're far more likely to go, go to their doctor, go or show up for treatment, or, and, they, and reduce, it reduces, they usually reduce the amount of drugs that they're taking, uh, if you will. And so that to me is a good problem. So to me, public health, what we want to do is define the problem, look at the consequences, and you know, so we do the scope, and then we want to try and look at programs that will reduce the harm to society and improve the health of the population. To me, a population for the person, for the people, for, for the family, and for all of society. And of course, it obviously reduces cost. So we try to identify the risk, identify the benefits. And, and I think the big thing we're trying to do now is look out and see who can help us. The one thing, you know, maybe the psychiatrists know a lot better than me, but I know that you can't do it alone. The person can't do it alone. The family can't do it alone. The community need multiple people in the community to help. And I've even, I even try to assign churches. You know, I said people who come out of prison, you know, they've been in prison. They want to do good. They want to be good, you know, but they can't find jobs. They, nobody wants them. They can't, can't go to college. They can't get funding. They can't live in housing because they can't get housing. So if, uh, so I, you know, ask the churches, you know, if every church would assign except one person to be responsible when they are discharged from prison, Let's say that this is my responsibility. We'll make, we'll find housing for, you know, if a whole church should be able to find a job or a house or something for one person. And so they just accept the responsibility for that one person on the day of discharge, if that really would, would be helpful. It takes a village. It, it takes, well, that's right. It certainly does take a village. And so, uh, so that I think that those are the things that I support, and I support firm partnerships, and I say absolutely, the government and everybody, we're supporting, it is, he said, 60-some million to Missouri for one state, but I'm saying that we need to support partnerships for other organizations throughout the community who can be helpful to develop the kind of data we need so we can begin to form the kind of community that we want to accept. We're, you know, the United States is better than what we're doing. We can do better. Every other, many other countries are doing so much better. We can do better. We've got to do better. And I think we've got to make a commitment to uh, do that. And the government must support partnerships, must support programs to begin to make a difference in drug treatment. Dr. Early Wine. It's hard to follow Dr. Jocelyn Elder saying we can do better. I really just have a couple of take-home messages. You know more about 
you than I do. We have a whole therapy now for the addictions built on that idea. It's called motivational interviewing. It's among the most successful, if not the most successful treatments out there. Alas, it doesn't take pictures of brains. So we can't quite get it into this wild addiction is a disease model. And so it's hard in some ways to get that funding. I want to assert a simple idea. Really this trying to biologize and make physiology out of every disorder is a manifestation of an even bigger problem. In our culture, we are afraid of negative affect. We're afraid of fear. Sadness makes us sad. Anger makes us angry. So we don't want to go anywhere near psychotherapy, things that are going to have us talking about our feelings. And the brain disease model helps us avoid the negative affect we cannot tolerate. If we could get everyone to just understand that sadness, God forbid, is a part of life, that throwing up and crying might actually be a productive thing to do, not a horrible thing to do, we could lick this. If we've got to work in this model, what motivates most substance abuse? It's either withdrawal relief, right? Oh, I can't tolerate getting away from this drug. Or, allegedly, some kind of negative reinforcement thing where I'm feeling a feeling I cannot tolerate. And so I take a medication of some sort to make that feeling go away. If only we had any other way to tolerate our own negative affect. Well, what a surprise. There are tons of data on this. We could teach people how to do that. And not only would addictions improve, depression, anxiety, a whole lot of what we've been labeling mental illness would get better as well. If I do have to get inside this brain model, I'm happy to take pictures of everyone's brain. I'll do an fMRI pre and post psychotherapy if that will get me $65 million. But my hope is that we don't then have that turn into what it has become, which is, oh, this is a brain disease. I need a medication to treat this disorder. And if it's not working, I need to just get up to the therapeutic dose. No talking about feelings, no sadness and fear. Just get those neurons to fire the way they're supposed to fire. I was having a disheartening dinner conversation with the former head of the NIAAA, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. They had finished Project Match, the stunning multi-site treatment outcome study where Alcoholics came in and were randomly assigned to one of three different treatments. And lo and behold, guess what? All three won. All three should have prizes. But they were literally between four and 12 sessions. And I said to that head of NIAAA, who knows what we could do with, God forbid, 16 sessions? 
six months of psychotherapy. And he said, oh, no, Mitch. No, no. We need to add medication to each of these therapies. And then we'll have this wonderful, fast, effective treatment for addiction. The stigma around, God forbid, going to therapy as long as I have, having therapists become part of your life is so strong, I've got to brainize it. I've got to biologize it. Imagine an app, and I get up in the morning, and I perform a few little decision tasks, and the app says, you know what, Mitch? You're not at your cognitive peak. Maybe you should go to therapy on Wednesday this week instead of Sunday and tell your therapist that you botched this little test. And I do. And we plan around the fact that maybe I'm not at my cognitive peak because I'm hungry all the time, or I'm lonesome, or I'm tired. Not that I'm not at my therapeutic dose. And lo and behold, I don't have a lapse. I don't have a relapse. I'm a cheap date. But if I don't have that app, if I don't have that therapy, what will I do? Odds are high. I will do the best I can all by myself and maybe have a lapse and maybe end up being a rather expensive relapse. If you're interested in funding this app, feel free to email me. And let's entertain this idea that, truth be told, if we all tolerated negative affect, a whole bunch of disorders might decrease. And maybe psychotherapy is not the horror we once thought it was. Thank you. Uh, Suzanne, Dr. Sisson. I'm inspired to stand too now. This is great. <laughs> I'm, I just want, I, you know, this panel has raised some really important issues. I'm going to try to build on that a little bit. I. You know, so I'm a primary care doc with my mom, who's also family practice, and we had an addiction clinic for years where, you know, we felt using all the conventional treatments, Suboxone and other, you know, standard prescriptions to try to modify people's addiction. Um, it was really disappointing, and I think that that's what's brought me to this point in my life now, even though I was trained or sort of indoctrinated into this disease model that so many have highlighted now. I, I feel so strongly, you know, my, my thinking has evolved, and I'm now embracing plant-based medicines, and we're doing clinical trials at our lab looking at things like um, cannabis-assisted therapy and psilocybin mushroom-assisted therapy for treating these addictions that were only you know, minimally responsive to, to standard prescriptions. And so this is where, you know, in our addiction clinic, the classic patients we would see were folks, as was discussed earlier, people who have just unrelenting cravings. And then the, the you know, sort of subsequent um, you know, methodical drug-seeking behavior that would occur. And then, of course, that would lead to some short-term relief. People would get better for a while, but then ultimately there was this sort of you know, these long-term consequences um, that came from this. They, they, were, they were just unable to give up these various addictions. And what I came to learn over time is that really all of us um, have addiction, right? It doesn't matter, as, as folks said here, it doesn't matter whether you're addicted to sugar 
or caffeine or television or shopping or social media, whatever, we all have these same kind of characteristics. And yeah, sure, they may not lead to these catastrophic personal or societal consequences, um, but most of us are functional addicts with various um, substances or behaviors. So, um, so I started to you know, do a lot of reading, looking at um, you know, all kinds of thinkers who believe now that you know, addiction stems from trauma, that, that it's often childhood trauma or emotional loss that promotes these kind of addictions. Um, but to me, I'm not as worried about the etiology as I am, a, you know, because I'm a physician, I want to see people get better uh, to be functional. And so my interest really lies in trying to find, um, you know, medically active plants. I'm really trying to get away from the chemically created pharmaceuticals and help people find natural alternatives that will help them transition away from addictions. And I've been very persuaded by, you know, I'm a principal investigator for MAPS. Many of you know MAPS is a really wonderful nonprofit that's been spearheading a lot of the research specifically on MDMA-assisted therapy. And our, you know, our data is phenomenal. What we're seeing with psychedelics, you know, employing psychedelics to help people move away from their addictive behavior is so compelling to me. It's way more impressive than what we're seeing with, um, you know, with the conventional treatments. Yeah, I feel like regular prescriptions that we employ in the clinic are, are offering some symptom control, um, but they're not treating the underlying problem. If, if addictions are emanating from trauma, um, then these conventional meds aren't reaching that. And with psychedelics, we're able to, to dive deep and do what you know, a lot of people are calling a brain reboot. You know, we're basically reprogramming folks' brains to be able to sort of close that chapter of their life. And many of you probably have seen the data out of Johns Hopkins, just a simple study with psilocybin for treating nicotine addiction. You know, 80% of the patients had no detectable um, signs of nicotine cravings um, at, at the end of, of just one simple psilocybin session. And then even two years later, still 60% of the patients denied um, relapse. So that to me is, is so extraordinary. And I feel like that's where you know, all addiction psychiatrists or addiction medicine people need to take note of this. And we need to deal with the underlying um, trauma rather than just symptom control. Now, you know, you were talking about uh, functioning addicts. And um, two things come to mind. First of all, as a surgeon, I'm a general surgeon, many of you may be aware that the, the person considered the founder of modern surgery, William Halstead, he was a professor at Johns Hopkins in the early 20th century, not only did he invent many of the, the operative procedures we still do to this day, but many of the precepts of surgical technique that we still do today. He was a true, a true great, and we learned that most of, for most of his professional career, he was a morphine addict, so he was a functioning addict. And that, so that, what that brings to my mind, we're here talking about do we treat addiction as a disease or as a, a learning disorder, but do we necessarily need to treat every addiction? I know, Jacob, in your book saying, yes, you, you, you um, documented many cases of people who are either functioning addicts or 
fairly regular users of illicit drugs who don't become addicted. Sure, I mean, I get, we, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the norm is not to have serious problems as a result of using drugs. The vast majority of people who use drugs do not become addicted to them, do not have serious problems as a result unless they happen to get arrested. Um, no and, gateway. And I would like to say, because we've been talking about addiction so much, we sort of lost sight of what the typical case is, which is not addiction. Um, and uh, I want to say a word in favor of fun. Uh, that drugs are fun, and that's why people like to use them. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. And when people talk about marijuana legalization, for example, and they say, oh my god, uh, more people are going to smoke pot, or people who already smoke pot are going to smoke it more. Uh, and my feeling is that's a benefit. That means people are getting pleasure they otherwise would, would have uh, foregone, or not been able to afford, or been, uh, it would have been too inconvenient for them to get it. Uh, so to the extent you see an increase in consumption of marijuana after legalization, that should be counted as a benefit. Uh, the things that are costs are things like, uh, you know, people smoking so much pot that they can't function anymore, that would be a cost. How often does that happen? It's not the typical case, right? The vast majority of people are not going to be like that. Um, so uh, I, I, we, uh, we always feel a need, or I shouldn't say we, we. People in the, in, the, in the drug policy reform movement often feel a need to talk about serious purposes for currently illegal drugs, and there certainly are serious purposes in terms of you know, psychotherapy, spiritual uses, and so on, but uh, drugs are also fun, and there's nothing wrong with serious using fun. drugs for fun as long as you're not messing up your life and not messing up other people's lives. And again, that's typically the situation is uh, you're using them in a functional way that actually improves your life. It occurs to me that uh for example, if you're addicted to tobacco, nicotine in tobacco, or alcohol, um, which we tolerate much more than with these other drugs, actually long-term use of that could be much more harmful physically to you than if you're addicted to something like an opioid. Or cannabis. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean what was it? Yeah. Or cannabis. Or cannabis. So I'd like somebody to, to, who feels comfortable talking about this. How did we get to the point where you know, some drugs are, we, we tolerate you having a problem with the drug, but other drugs, we don't even tolerate you going there and touching that drug. How do we get to Stan that? Stan Peel has written on this rather extensively, but let me give you the abbreviated version. If we live in a country that allegedly has a certain set of founders who may have all shared, allegedly, some religious views, that'd be a good place to look for an origin of what is prohibited and what is not. And if there was a period in time when suddenly we decided, wait, no, this substance is evil and bad. Let's, oh, I don't know, pass a constitutional amendment to make it illegal. And that ends up being a catastrophe. We at least undo it. But now a whole bunch of folks in law enforcement are going to be losing their jobs. Maybe we could find a new substance to vilify, particularly if people who aren't necessarily white and English speakers happen to use it. And lo and behold, we have a giant act just making that substance illegal. And whew, all my friends in law enforcement get to keep their publicly funded jobs. So let me take uh, maybe just raise three counterpoints because I always like to do that. Um, I don't put down alcohol as an example of something that's more harmful 
and yet we tolerate it. You may be aware that the World Health Organization has just declared that the best amount of alcohol to drink is zero. Public health has now declared alcohol off limits because the same temperance mentality prevails. By the way, Gallup does a study, people who drink are significantly better educated and earn more money than <coughs> people who don't drink. So I'm not gonna go in that direction. I'm also going to, I like where uh, uh, Jacob was going. I never use the term functional addict, never. I'm not here to defend DSM-5, despite the fact that they're now on board with what I've been telling them. But they begin by saying, people, you have a mild, a moderate, or a severe substance use or alcohol use disorder. And people said, well, now they have mild disorders. They're reaching out and grabbing people. But the beginning of DSM-5 says something very significant. You are not in this volume, no matter what you do, if you are not impaired and you do not suffer distress. You can take drugs. You can, was Winston Churchill an alcoholic? He drank about 15 drinks a day. However, he, made, he became prime minister, we now see in the crown, into his 90s, practically. And he did single-handedly save the civilized world at the outbreak of World War II by declaring that England would fight the Nazis until America, was he an alcoholic? He drank enough to be an alcoholic. And the third little counterpoint I would make, so you were having lunch with Enoch Gordas oh, in God. Westchester? Um, I get a little different message from Project Match. The fact that everybody did as well no matter what treatment they received, they received four treatments in motivational interviewing and 12 in skills training and 12-step. They all did as well, and people didn't come to all their, they came to about two-thirds of their meetings. So you did as well as if you went to two motivational interviewing meetings as if you went to 12. What's that like? Somebody has talked to you about thinking through your own existence in a way that has helped you to decide to change your life. I'm not a great, I have, by the way, I have an online uh, addiction um, coaching service called Life Process Program. And what's great about it for me is that people can tune in or tune out when they want at a moment's notice and there are no structured requirements and we work with their own motivations. The answer to dealing with addiction is never going to be to take people out of their existences and put them in some other environment, the answer to the addiction crisis is going to create a world which is sufficiently motivating and engaging for people that they won't become addicted. If I would have had the chance to ask you, none of you became addicted to an opioid that you, despite all of you taking it. When I do that exercise in a group, I do it online with a group at Essex University. Why didn't you become addicted? Isn't that the crucial question in life? And one young woman student said, because I had other things to do. And that's so stupid and non-brain sciencey. People need to have an engaged, I hate to say it, I wouldn't have voted for her, but my favorite candidate in the presidential debates was Marianne Williamson. She said, 
People will solve the opioid crisis when we enable people to thrive. You know, what about, uh, Suzanne, since you, you, you treat people with addiction, um, the majority of people just without any treatment recover. Right. How, how does that happen? Yeah. Do we have any idea why that uh, is? I mean, it's, I think it's just personal resilience. People have a drive to survive and they recognize eventually that um, that they see the long-term consequences and they start to at least curb their behaviors enough that they can continue, you know, thriving in their personal relationship, in their workplace. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I want to echo what the discussion about fun and the idea. This has been a huge problem in our FDA clinical trials that we are not allowed to code um, you know, like euphoria as anything but an adverse event. And I think most of us would agree that this is something that we, we all want to attain is that level of euphoria and joyfulness. But the, in the eyes of the FDA and the regulatory bodies, this is a, a harmful side effect. And, um, and so I think until we can find that balance where we can help the FDA change these paradigms and help them see what these guys are talking about, that, that there is a balance and, and addict, you know, patients who have addictions um, are able to adjust themselves and kind of create a new homeostasis in their lives to be able to persist. These aren't just our clinical impressions either. Sobel's have data with literally hundreds of people who stopped problem drinking on their own. Let me ask another question. You're not going to call security, are you, if I get the group involved? <laughs> no, no. What's the toughest drug addiction to quit? Nicotine. Nicotine. How many people in this room have been addicted to nicotine? Raise your hand. Oh, you're so good, for God's sake. <laughs> what a crappy bunch. Uh, how many of you quit your nicotine addiction? Raise your hand. So most, you, all of you. How many of you use an official kind of smoke <coughs> enders program or took an anti, you know, a narco, uh, uh, Jantix or something? Yeah. Yes, or a replacement therapy. Raise your hand. Again, we're getting 100% response. Everybody who is addicted to nicotine has quit and none has used the therapy. Why did you quit? Did you quit, miss, with the long blonde hair? Who Why did you quit? What a crazy concept. And it might have taken you a little bit of time and you had a circle around it. Is that true? Or... So it was an instant. She quit because she knew it was bad for her. And another reason people give is, well, I had children. How, what a dumb reason. I had ch well, I'm getting back. I like her. I'm telling about her. Having People's children lives, wrecks a lot of good behaviors. Yeah. People's lives sure. create a set of rewards and what's meaningful to them, which motivational interviewing helps to focus them on, like what's the most important thing in your life? How is your whatever doing affecting that? And then people zone in on what some people do, a lot of people, most people do on their own over time to get to work in their own best existential interests. Well, God like, bless them. I mean, DiClemente's data suggests it's often not the narrative you hear, it's often the fifth or the seventh attempt yeah. where you throw the cigarettes in the trash, but people still do it. You know, um, I guess I can, I can figure out where this is going to, what kind of answer I'm going to get when I ask for people their opinion on such things as uh, 
involuntary treatment, drug courts, and emergency holds that are being implemented in, in certain uh, states. Anybody want to speak to that at all? I have some clinical experience with that, but yeah, oh, I just I don't think coercive treatment works. Uh, we see it all the time. We get referred patients from the court system constantly, and they just don't thrive in that setting, and it's not until that is, uh, you know, pulled away and they finally are able to do it on their own that they succeed long Are you term. able to turn them around? Do you have ways of interacting with them to get them to be not there because they were forced there? Yeah, that's the, ch the challenge, because it's overhanging. It's, it's always at the front of their mind, so until that's alleviated, it's tough to get them beyond that. I can tell you the trick, and it's they come in and they say, I don't want to be here. And then you say, well, if we're not going to talk about that, what should we talk about? And they say, help me get person X, my parole officer, my spouse, my children, off my back about my drug use. And I listen and reflect and let them generate all the options they can and pick one and go try. And, then, and they often come up with some controlled use I'm going to only have four beers every night, Mitch, I promise. And my favorite story was I was at the VA, and the guy finally came in and said, oh, if I can't have a 12-pack, what's the point? <laughs> but that was seven sessions in. I couldn't wag my finger the first day and say, you're going to quit or else. But he all of this left. speaks against the disease model because, Alas. because I know you, a disease that works that way. It's um, well, if I force somebody yeah. uh, into antibiotic treatment for their pneumonia, they're going to get better, yeah. even if they didn't want it. If I take them and I have somebody hold them down and I run the antibiotics into them, they're going to get better even if they didn't want it. It was they didn't give informed consent, but it doesn't work <laughs> that way with. Uh, but this is I mean, this. because this is supposed to be a disease that nullifies free will, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where the justification for coercion comes from. Uh, we think, uh, or many people think, of, of, of the disease model as being compassionate, right? It's not a crime. It's not a vice. It's a disease. We're going to help you. We don't right. want to punish you. Most wanna, people consider themselves. Right. All right, but you end up in a situation where, look, if I get arrested for, for, for drug use, I would much rather go to the treatment than go to jail. So in that sense, it's better. But, but you are still punishing people and still coercing people under the guise of helping them, whether they want it or not, because they don't know what they want. And their choices don't matter because they, this disease has taken over their will. So it has very troubling implications uh, in terms the of state how, knows how better. You, moral implications in terms of how you treat people. Uh, and also, as Stanton, I'm sure, could amplify, uh, it has bad consequences in terms of uh, establishing self-fulfilling expectations. It's a disease. I, I'm always going to have this disease. I can maybe control it if I learn to avoid the thing. I'm powerless. It's involved in, and I have no power. And so that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If people really think they do not have the capacity within themselves to control their behavior, uh, you will very often find that they can't. <laughs> or they think they find that they can't. And this, uh, this no. segues into social class differences. Because all of you, how useful would it have been to tell you Oh, you can't give up smoking on your own. It's a disease of the free will. Or to tell somebody, well, if you take opioids, you'll become addicted. And you all agree that that's sort of true, but you didn't believe it in your own lives. You have your own resistant self-efficacy, which we're trying to beat the shit out of you with all these constant programs telling you that you lack the ability to control yourself. It's not a good societal trend. 
It's one, and what, the question I'm asking, why are more, why are three quarters of a million people dying since we implemented this official policy, the brain disease? We are supplementing, we are implementing, we are creating our own death crisis by telling people that they can't make use of the greatest self-curative mechanism that we have, which is self-efficacy, and which most people in reasonably good situations will come to grips with on their own, but the most vulnerable, the people in inner city, Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and post-industrial Ohio and rural New England, they don't have those resources. They're the most susceptible to the disease meme, oh, you can't control your use of this substance, and if it goes haywire or by the wayside, there's nothing you can do on your own to remedy that. So it almost becomes like a, uh, it gives people an excuse. Say, so I can't help myself, and it's actually doing harm. It's that the way. disease. Yeah. I, I was going to mention, too, the two groups in our clinic that seem to do the best are pilots and health professionals, doctors, pharmacists, because when they're put into a coercive therapy, they... Their they, genes are different. Exactly. Well, and they have so much, you know, it's... But, but they have a reason. Exactly. It's so evident to them how much they have to lose. Their right. profession is so valuable that if they don't get it together... And so these people have an extraordinary success well, rate. And like, same reason some people quit smoking. Exactly. So the fact is, you do have free will. Yes. The difference between people, when they crack epidemic occurred, cocaine epidemic, a lot of people quit... And some people didn't. And the analysis that people gave, it's not why you're using the drug that's the most important. It's how much you have to lose if you don't quit. So um, I, maybe it's a good time now to, to uh, open it up to questions, I think. Uh, so uh, i, I got to read this. <laughs> so please, first of all, we have people with microphones circulating. Uh, and uh, wait to be called on and wait for the microphone so that everyone in the room and our audience watching online can hear your question. And I ask you to please announce your name and affiliation and try to keep it to a, a, a brief, succinct question so we can get as many in as possible in the remaining time. So any questions? Let's uh, take uh, row two here um, in the middle. Hi, uh, Colleen Cowles, uh, WarrenUs.com. Uh, as a, an attorney and uh, a mother who's had addiction in her family, I look at these definitions a little differently. Um, at great um, panel. Um, I had hoped when I looked at the disease definition of, of addiction that it would uh, give a defense, since if it's a disease, there shouldn't be any intent, and therefore it shouldn't be, uh, make someone culpable legally. Um, so we, the same thing with, with using medications. I believe a lot of people are on medications for, uh, for addiction because relapse is part of it, and they'd rather be on legal medications than they would relapse and go to prison. Uh, so how do we use science and medicine logically without adding fuel to the drug warriors? Who wants to take that? Anyone? That's a tough one. Yeah, well, you go. I mean, the, yeah. the bottom line is, what is the rationale for the prohibition we have right now? The hope was drug use would somehow decrease, perhaps because if it's illegal, it would become more expensive. 
and then some folks wouldn't be willing to shell out for it or something along those lines. Well, data suggests it's, it's not working. So if I try to imagine what it would cost for 10 milligrams of THC worth of cannabis, for example, all through prohibition, it was held remarkably low. The probability I, of arrest was still, if you weren't dealing, remarkably low. If I, the, I the law's not going to kick in, how could it have any impact? I interpreted your question somewhat differently. I interpreted your question as being, well, medications can be assist people in different varieties, even perhaps psychiatrically. How do you give them that medication without defrocking them of their free will? And I, I, when Mitch started saying, well, it's the underlying message, the message with MAT or anything else has to be, here is something that can be some compensation and some way for you to segue into a full life on your own. It doesn't mean that you can't do that on your own. We believe that you can do that on your own. This is one tool in our arsenal that we're going to tr try out as, as a technique that might help you. And I, I mean, I think it, it, it it's, we call it a treatment. <laughs> um, but it could also be viewed as a kind of maintenance, as an alternative drug. And basically, you only have two options now, right? methadone and, and buprenorphine. Um, what, what if you expanded the options? And we can still call it treatment if that helps. I think <laughs> for insurance coverage, it, it definitely helps. Uh, we still call it treatment, but expand the options. So maybe if you have a, a more variety, you will get more people into treatment and more people will stick with treatment. What is it that people prefer? when they come to treatment. Well, they probably prefer something similar to what they're already taking, but if they can get a legally produced uh, pure uh, drug where they know what they're getting, they're, they're facing much lower risks, much less likely they're gonna get into trouble with it. So now you have come at a kind of, of, of maintenance program, which is officially still illegal, but if we can call it treatment, then it's okay. And so I'm hoping there can be some leeway there. And then, you know, what do we call it? What's the, uh, the other name for heroin? Uh, Dimorphine. Diacetyl. So we say, what about diacetylmorphine as an option? Maybe that oh. can be allowed for treatment, you know, and then uh, maybe you can stick it in that way. But we should, I feel like on the one hand, you kind of have to play that game. But on the other hand, we should be more clear-eyed about what's happening, we, we, which is it's a kind of harm reduction. We're saying here is another way for you to get this thing that you want in the same way that switching from smoking to vaping decreases the risk you face, even though you're getting the same active ingredient. Um, this is a similar sort of thing, and it need not be the cure or the medicine. It can simply be an alternative that is much less hazardous uh, that reduces the harm. Um, and I, I wish we didn't have to medicalize it so much, but uh, that's the essence of what we're doing. You're trying to let this person have the drug that they want, but in a way that is less hazardous. You, uh, Stanton, you, of course, oh, 20 years ago now, started, maybe more, started um, making the argument for, for dealing with alcohol addiction, um, moderation management rather than um, abstinence. So that's a similar kind of approach. Well, among the things that I've been engaged in over, you know, I become 74 next year, and I'm trying not to end up like Semmelweis, dead in a mental institution, <laughs> because he discovered the germ theory of women dying in the birthing hospital because they didn't wash their hands. But I've been talking about these things for quite a long time. In the early 80s, the gigantic fight, which was harm reduction, was whether alcoholics could reduce their drinking. And there was a giant movement which said it was impossible. It was 
causing death to tell people that that was a pot. Who decided that? Who decided that some human beings couldn't drink less or drink in safer circumstances? The most ironic demonstration of that was uh, Alan Marlott did a study. They did wet housing in Seattle where people that were on the street who were alcoholic by every definition were allowed to come into a residence and to drink freely. And it wasn't a therapeutic environment. They just didn't want them to die or use up public health uh, resources. And they reduced their drinking, incidentally, from 18 drinks a day to 12 drinks a day. So they're still alcoholics, but somehow just being in a safe place where people weren't harassing them and they could drink when they wanted to was beneficial. So and they were, you know, and that's good. Everybody knew, and there were less, and, and of course, it, they cut their costs in half the jails and the hospitals. Where did we decide that on these abstract goals? The other thing I like to talk about that, um, that I pioneered was recognizing the early 80s, natural recovery. We always have to keep in mind that the single greatest intervention is to encourage people's own self-healing tendencies, that that's what our goal is. Motivational interviewing works because it's not doing anything to a person, it's assisting them to come to their own best interest. And if we lose track, of, I mean, now I sound like a libertarian, if we lose track of the individual's capacity and power to manage and better themselves, then what have we got? We've got nothing. Another question? Um, the front row center. I gotta go to the back right after this. My name is Bruce Blumenthal. I'm a family physician and geriatrician in the Baltimore metro area. And I have a couple questions for the panel. I'll try and keep it brief. One is that when we've talked about opioids, and I was at a uh, seminar here a few months ago, we drew a distinction between addiction and dependency. And that's not been something that's been addressed at all by the uh, panel. And I'd like to hear your comments on that. And the other is um, I don't remember quite so well, although I was there, what the introduction of the disease model, what the motivation was other than to create a mechanism by which we could deal with the problem rather than <coughs> a lot of um, rationale on a purely scientific basis as to it being a disease model. By that I mean um, if you have it as a disease model, we can come up with modalities to treat it, but absent that we as a profession, those of us in medicine, we're really kind of at a loss. And I've never been comfortable with the disease model, and I'm not now. We actually, you know, we have nicotine receptors in our brain. We have opioid receptors in our brain. This isn't a disease. This is the way we're designed. Um, I'm wondering about comments how, on that. How about hearing from well. some of the MDs? <coughs> the dependence and addiction distinction is great for filling journal pages and getting academics tenure and seems to offer little in the clinic. Is your life how you want it to be or not? Is drug use in the way or not? That's what matters. Those are great questions. Do you have withdrawal if you're X minutes out from the last time you used? Eh. Anybody else? Any MDs like to say yeah, something? Yeah, I'll just mention, too, I, I fear that um, the disease model has really promoted so much stigma among these folks are 
Um, it's rather than the war on drugs, it's really the war on addicts. And I feel like we're creating this subclass of patients who are, um, if they get labeled as addicts, they end up being condescended to, and it's really difficult for them to get treatment in medical settings because they're automatic, it's all over their chart that they're, you know, like with a scarlet letter suddenly, and all the doctors are biased against them after that. It's really challenging, and I don't, I'm not sure how to overcome that, but I think that, um, you know, getting away from the disease model is, is essential. Well, well, I think one of the things that we as a society, if you think about it, we need to change our attitudes about about how we look at drugs, how we are either a disease or how we approach its cures and what we accept as cures and how we look. We, you know, what we're doing is we're down here treating the end result. And, you know, we're dealing with what happens at the end. We've not gone back. We in medicine have not gone back. We, you know, we have done, we're great scientists. We've got the best doctors, the best scientists, the best hospitals in the world, but we don't have the best health. And we need to stop and think about why is that true? It's because we're always out here treating the end results. And we need to go back up, go upstream, and look at what's causing some of these problems. And I think one of the things we know is when we talk about, well, we've just said, well, we would give a person a reason to quit, a reason to live, a reason to want to do better. Well, if we gave them that to begin with, they wouldn't start. So we need to go back and start looking at, like our young people, our adolescents, why if we gave them a safe, comfortable, wonderful place and make life <laughs> and didn't have so many unplanned children uh, who didn't, you know, who, so absolutely, I feel that everything we can do to make all children planned, healthy, wanted, in a safe, comfortable home, in a safe, comfortable school, in a safe, comfortable, wanted, loving community, that that would make things better. So I'm saying that we, you know, we, we know, we look at how, where many, well, like the war on drugs, the war on drugs, all they did was put a young, a lot of young black men in jail. We became the world's fattest jailer. And we didn't make a difference in drug use or addiction or, you know, and and treatment, and, and you know, now we've got, but well, then we made it a disease. And then we got, you know, you can look in the fancies, we can look at the brain and know that it changed before and after treatment. And, and so we can call it a, a disease, but none of that produced any new ways of diagnosis, any new ways of treatment, any new ways of doing doing things. So I'm, I'm saying that I think we need to look at how we, uh, uh, how we look at diagnosis, how, you know, how we look at treatment, how we look at what we accept, and how we look at what we're going to do and what we need to do to make our country a healthier, better place in which all people can live better. And, and I think that that would 
that, I think that that would do a great deal to address the problem. It's not a single treatment, but there is no single treatment. It's going to take all of us. We've all got to be involved. And we've all got to make a difference. And we've all got, and, you know, we've got to educate our policymakers, our teachers, our t schools, our, our pastors, everybody. Everybody has got to be involved in trying to address this problem. But I think the first thing we've got to do is we've got to change the attitudes of this whole country. Um, now you're channeling Marianne Williamson. Wait a minute. Well, I might be, that's what I believe. This gentleman actually <laughs> has been wanting to ask questions. We were the first to hold his hand up. My name is Matt Prickett, and I'm grateful to be a, a, an alcoholic and addict in recovery. I'm not recovered. Recovery is a full time job for me. I started in August. August 15th of 1982, I happened to check in to Doug Talbot's project in Atlanta, the Impaired Physicians Program. I learned that doctors are the worst addicts of all because drugs are available. I learned they do terrible things like put saline in their cancer patients' drip and shoot up the stuff themselves. I was one guy I did a proposal to do research using cocaine to treat cataracts. He got like 500 pounds, and he thought, oh, man, this is great. I've got a lifetime supply. But it didn't work out real well for the guy. He had too much. I'm sitting here at Cato Institute. I used to be part of the libertarian wing of the Republican Party. I'm now pure libertarian. The Republican Party has gone to hell as far as I'm concerned. Do you have no, children? It, Do you have children? What The question is... Question. <laughs> From early on, you guys all described disease as something called by, by bacteria or virus. I suffer from a mental illness. I suffer from multiple mental illnesses. One of those, depression, uh, there's nothing safe I could take for it in 82. Anything that was available was addictive. Uh, addiction to me is a disease of the mind, the spirit, the body, and it, it's, it's hellish, but you know, I, I tried hedonism for 20 years, and right. joy joy was great, but, I mean, fun was great, but it came at a real price. Joy, I found, in learning to be responsible for my life. And anybody who wants to get sober, anybody who wants to get clean, there's a way to do it. Uh, the 12 steps are denigrated here. They, they're open to interpretation. Every group is different. Every... AA members different. I found a way that works for me, and I'm grateful for it. And I hope you guys continue to try to understand the disease. It's very complicated, multifunctional. Uh oh. Go ahead. You have children? Yes. My I, my daughter was six months old when my wife greeted me at the door, and she said, "Matt, your behavior is unacceptable." How does your child? You, I love you. You only have one child. Uh, yes, my own child. How does she deal with drugs and alcohol? How do, well, she and her husband both are children of alcoholics, and they are vigilant, but they do like to slurp. So, you know, it's a, it, this thing to me is not all that mysterious because it's so personal. I've dedicated 37 years to studying it. I, I want to give some more people a chance to talk, um, but the, anybody here have a comment about 
I understand that a lot of people don't believe there's such a thing as an addictive personality. The, I mean, the take-home take message, just as I was perseverating on how we're all afraid of negative affect, we're super afraid in the sciences of anything spiritual. I don't have a scanner that can measure your soul, so it's very hard to look there, and I'm not going to argue with alleged mechanisms for anybody's improvement, but perhaps going anywhere near that notion as a mechanism is great. I just published in my lab ayahuasca antidepressant effects and what might be the mechanisms behind this. And I couldn't take pictures of people's souls, but we did find that the folks who literally started doing the things that were consistent with some of the empirically validated treatments for depression were also the ones who ended up having their depression improve better. So they thought about their own thoughts differently, and they actually did things they relished and enjoyed that were consistent with their idea of fun and what mattered to them. And what a surprise, the depression lifts. Did the ayahuasca do that? I don't know, but I at least now have something to target and try to enhance if we want to have like the things that Dr. Sisley is pointing out, uh, psychedelic enhanced psychotherapy. If there's a spiritual side of it and I could actually talk to somebody about that in a non-judgmental, motivational interviewing way and that's their mechanism, why not? Uh, I just uh, want to add, yeah. just one thing, not to dump on the 12 steps even more, but <laughs> just one, one thing to consider. We're, we're, we're seemingly talking about <laughs> two completely different things, right? A disease that's treated by medicine by doctors and a spiritual transformation, which is even though AA is calling it a disease, the remedy is a spiritual one. Is that right? So th there's something incongruous about that to me. If it works for you, that's great. <laughs> but, but I don't quite get how it's a disease, a medical disease, but the cure for it is spiritual. Right. Uh, I want to get some people from the back. Um, that lady. Woman back there, yeah. The one. That's you. Yeah. This with the glasses. Yeah, the one in the yeah. purple. Wait for the, wait for the person to come around with a mic, please. I think uh, it's absurd you're not considering a spiritual reason for anything. Uh, could you state Actually, your name and Jeanine affiliation? Jeanine is my name. I don't have an affiliation. If I do anything, I do shamanic and intuitive work. I used to be nothing. I used to drive a forklift. I used to just do whatever, and I came to this place of my own awakening after 20 years of antidepressants and anxiety medication and being in, like, models of abuse internally and externally I cannot explain, and plant medicine is what brought me out of it. Finding a purpose, having an understanding about what I am, and that I mean something, that I'm important. Movement, the body, and nature. Where is all of this in your guys' conversation? Because so far, I'm sitting here shaking from talking, but I can't feel myself while I'm listening to you all talk. And the, the one guy in the room who has the balls to stand up and say, I'm here, I'm an addict, and I have something for you all. Everybody's like wanting to cure him instead of listening. Maybe that's what we need to be doing. Where is spirituality in your guys' model? Where is nature? Where is God? OK, thank you. Well, you've been talking about plant, but uh, let, one of the most moving things I ever heard, when people go to a wet house, and they're allowed to drink. You know what they sometimes say? This is the first time I've ever been someplace 
where people cared whether I lived or died. Is that spiritual? That you tell people that you care, that their life matters? Is that, is that spiritual? I asked that lady, is that a spiritual comment? I mean, Jenny, what we're struggling with is how do we, how do we measure the spiritual thing? It's possible that we're using different words for the same thing. And so you say spiritual, and I kind of understand what that means. But to me, it's, you know, you also talk about love, and that I, I understand, and connection and support. Right, okay, but I, I, what I, let me tell you what I have in mind, and you tell me if this is what you have in mind when you talk about spiritual. All of those things, it's very important to have that sense of purpose, the sense of meaning, the sense of connectedness to other people. I'm not sure if that's what you have in mind uh, when you talk about spiritual things, but for sure that's important for people who want to avoid uh, negative relationships with psychoactive substances or with anything. Um, so I, I think all of us believe that, yeah? Wasn't Dr. Um, Rell and, and I guess I see, I see a sort of contradiction between that perspective and say, calling it a, a disease and, and something that doctors treat. I guess, I, to me, that's contradictory. Although you might argue that you know, the spiritual realm is connected to the physical realm and it, it affects, you know, all these things affect each other, that kind of thing. But is that, so when you say spiritual, is that the sort of thing you have in mind? Connectedness and meaning and... Well, let's wait uh, for the mic so everybody else could hear. Wasn't Dr. Elder speaking about spiritual things? Yeah. Yes. I'm talking about ancestral patterns that are inside the genes, inside the DNA. I'm talking about, like, um, I was suicidal for 10 years, and I was in the middle of an ayahuasca ceremony when I met the being, the entity, that had pushed my great-grandfather out a window, and he died supposedly of delirium tremens. and I saw him inside of my field. I felt his energy. I could feel his vibration, a feeling I'd been feeling my whole life as this force cleared out of my being. We don't have to go that out there. Maybe that's way too out there for science, but there's explanations for things that are not, not even coming close to considering on this panel. And, and that has to do with our relationship to the divine and our relationship to nature, and therefore how much we're willing to love ourselves. Okay, thank you. Uh, for what it's worth, the behavioral activation thing I was alluding to before in that antidepressant finding has items like spent more time in nature, connected to people I value, Things along those lines that aren't quite, I, you know, undid DNA-related spiritual matters, but at least seem to be going the same place that spiritual things claim to go. So it ends up having a lot of error variance, so to speak, because the spiritual experience seems so ideographic, because it means so many different things. And if we ask around it, Maybe we have a chance of, dare I say, channeling it, uh, indirectly measuring those same effects to get to the same outcome. 
A gentleman with a vest has been one. Maybe, I got, maybe I'm hanging around the wrong circles, but this is the most spiritual panel I ever been on. Um, don't you just want to hug them? <laughs> don't you, Hi. Even um, him. Hi my, hi, my name is Clark. Um, about 85 years ago, two phrases come in, came into the ideology of, of recovery, and that was that one needed a vital spiritual experience or an entire psychic change. And those were said by two eminent psychiatrists. One invented CBT. And none of you have talked about it. What's wrong with this panel? <laughs> what so what's we, wrong with what this What do panel? we miss? Why do we suck so much? That's the question. Well, so now that just like with the negative affect, the spirituality thing is in some ways forbidden. We're not allowed to say... And here's my spirituality scale. Would you mind filling out these items? Can you imagine the people I might freak out, offend, or? Um, I, I, I don't want, I want to, because I don't want to cut into other people's questioning. So this gentleman here in uh, row two. Thanks. Howard Woldridge with COPS, Citizens Opposing Prohibition. Uh, to Dr. Elder's point, Two years ago, Dr. Nora Volkov, the head of NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse, said of the 100 people starting heroin today for the first time, 80 to 90% are coming from prescription opioids. So yes, there is trauma for some people. There are, people are silly or stupid to use these drugs, but 80 to 90% of the heroin issue is coming from legal oxycodone type stuff. Uh, and my question is on best practice. The, the Congress has held 20-odd hearings in the last four years on the opioid crisis. Will you ride a horse across the United States about it? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so why didn't you get to into heroin when you took opioids? Well, I'm, I'm just a little guy. <laughs> but nobody in this room did. Why is that? Why did nobody in this room who got on opioids get onto heroin? Tell me that. Because, why? Because most of us understand you don't want to become addicted and you, or you're sensible, you don't go from the legal amount the doctor gave you eight pills to also I'm going to take 18 more. But my question is best practice. The Congress has held no hearings on best practice. So the consumers in the United States whose loved ones are in trouble have no idea which method is best. Is it abstinence? Is it medication-assisted treatment? Is it all the way to the Swiss program of diacetylmorphine, for example? Uh, can you guys... Give us an idea, one, is there consensus in the medical, psychological community as to what is best practice for regular citizens to send somebody to the best place, or is there uh, not that sort of thing? There's no consensus in your professions. The I, answer I to every wanna, question wanna, in psychology is it depends. I want to use moderator's privilege here. Yeah. Uh, first of all, as was it Twain who said, lies, damn lies, and statistics. So those uh, 80%... Uh, who started with opioids, they didn't start by a doctor prescribing opioids for pain. They started by being handed an opioid at a high school party along with alcohol and, and maybe some uh, cannabis. So, but it does give a lot of people out there the false impression that they started by a doctor prescribing for them. That's actually the exception to the rules. Probably, you know, we see recent data showing it's less than 1% of people who are prescribed opioids even have uh, any misuse uh, signs. That's number one. Uh, and, and, and number two, uh, well, I'll leave it to the others regarding 
uh, abstinence versus MAT versus uh, other forms of therapy, my understanding as a non-addiction specialist is that uh, MAT seems to be the most effective, but only when it's combined with social connection, psychosocial intervention, not just putting you on, let's say, methadone or buprenorphine in a vacuum. So if you're released from an emergency room where you showed up with a drug overdose from heroin, and you, which is this, this is a common thing in, in Phoenix, right, Suzanne? Mm -hmm. Sent home with, uh, with a prescription for buprenorphine and told to make an appointment with uh, an addiction specialist. And as soon as you run out of buprenorphine, you're back using heroin again because that in itself is not going to deal with the underlying problem because it's, it, these are, you're self-medicating. These are coping skills. Coping, uh, these are coping mechanisms, and you need to develop different coping skills. At least that's my If there's one theme that's emerged from this panel and from you yourselves, it's that the drug is not the critical determinant of your outcome. It's the connectedness you have to life, to your community, to your purpose, and helpers do the best by assisting people to make those connections. That's what you've told us, why you didn't become addicted despite being exposed to opioids, and that's what virtually all of our work points towards. So at the end of the day, because we're a, a public policy research institute, the public policy question that I hope we have answered is that prohibition is certainly not any realistic way to address the, the issue of substance use disorder. And that's kind of a nice way to um, add some symmetry to the fact that this is repeal day. So any other last comments before we adjourn? You're the most huggable surgeon I've ever met. That's <laughs> yeah, we're not very huggable people, by the way. <laughs> Like them. <laughs> Quick question. I may not have heard your comments adequately. My name is Jill Morrison. I'm from Baltimore. I'm a social worker. I work with uh, the I work with inner city people in a daycare center, kind of the one step up from homelessness. And they, I would say, half the people have were addicts. Some of whom have fried their brains. I don't think any of them would in any way care or be affected by anything that was said today. <laughs> But my question is, and that's not an insult, that's just, just a I don't fact. know if that would have, yeah. you know, they, from trauma to having a crappy life, this is why they did it, and mm -hmm. these are the consequences. I heard you say that the medical, the disease model has increased death. Did I hear that? Tell them, Jacob. And but if so, what? <laughs> uh, no, that was, what, well, yes, what, tell them the title of your piece. Which piece? Oh, well, that, is not disease model per se, but it was the idea of the cracking down on, on prescription. The general mandate to reduce the volume of prescriptions has hurt both the patients who are bona fide patients who need uh, those medications for pain relief them? and sent, well, it killed, it killed uh, non-medical users who were pushed into the black market. So that intervention has clearly been counterproductive, and I, I think the strongest argument that, that the people who favor that intervention have is, yes, that will happen, <laughs> but ultimately, we're going to get fewer people getting addicted. But if, there's, if there are you know, fewer pills in circulation, ultimately, we'll have less. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I can tell you that it's not happening now, and, and it's demonstrably having uh, a negative effect and actually accelerating overdoses. Isn't it remarkable that a public health 
policy that's been endorsed across the board has coincided with an alarming rapid rise in deaths. Isn't that amazing to you? Well, they're, they're limiting prescription medications. And prescription medications from 2013 to 2017 went down and deaths rose asymptotically. How did that happen? Isn't that worth thinking about? We can't even let people die on their own. We have to come up with a policy that coordinates with them dying more frequently. How does that happen? I'm not, I'm not saying that's the disease model per se. I think, Stan, you are claiming, though, that the proliferation of the disease model is not just not helpful in terms of addiction and drug-related death, but that it actually compounds those problems. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Seven, 800,000 people have died in the time since uh, the NIDA announced that addiction is a brain disease. Didn't we hope it might go down when we discovered it was a brain disease? Wouldn't you think that would be the way we'd want to go? You're not alarmed by that? I'm the only person that cares? <laughs> <laughs> On that note, uh, we're actually out of time. Uh, so. Doctors are the third leading cause, or medical treatments are the third leading cause of death for Americans across the board. My question for medical doc medical accidents. Yes. My question for Dr. Sisley, given that you've looked at plant-based treatments, uh, we should remember that Tol Tolstoy, who was a smoker and an alcoholic, <coughs> gave up all of his addictions, including the gambling and the women, apparently and went to a purely plant-based and, and fasting diet. Have any of your treatments or any of your patients had success with a purely plant-based diet or, or fasting? Right. I don't have data to support that, but I have tons of anecdotal evidence from people in our clinic who are moving in that direction, not just in terms of diet, but also in terms of rejecting you know, standard pharmaceuticals and using all medically active plants to treat. I'm doing it right now with all the self-righteousness, too. Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely, I mean, people are voting with their feet and walking away from a lot of this material because they see that it, these chemicals are harmful. And I'm, you know, and unfortunately, the medical profession is still dominated by big pharma. And it's really hard to, you know, persuade doctors. The only way to do this is to really start in medical school and training and start to show them the benefits of medically active plants, even though they may not have FDA approval, they're still extremely valuable. That's why we have so much to learn from the Native American tribes in the U.S. that are these traditional healers within the tribes are all employing medically active plants for decades and they're just seeing tremendous results. And if we could, you know, partner with them and learn from them how they're doing this, we'd probably see even more medical breakthroughs. Well, I, we've got to continue to do good and better research. You know, when I wanted to do start out 20 years ago, I said, well, let's study drugs, let's study marijuana. I was told, absolutely, we will not, the government will not do that. Well, now they're beginning to, in Start, some ways, yeah. doing some of that. But, I, but I'm just saying that I think that we, you know, when I said everybody's involved, 
I think we as people, you know, are, have got, got to get involved in our communities, in our churches. You know, the, the only place everybody goes on Sunday, on Sunday, <laughs> not everybody, but. The Jews are at home. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we, we've all got to be involved. We've all got to make our politicians, you know, they're from our communities. We voted them in. We've got to make sure that they do the things we need done to begin to do what we need to do in our communities. And the reason they don't do different things is because we don't demand it. And we've got to say we care. We care enough to challenge what's going on, to challenge what's, what's, what, how we're doing things and what's going on. We, you're here because you're aware of the problem you're advocates for this problem, and you really want to make a difference. Spread the word. We, that's right. We've got to reach out. I just want to add Be 30 second thing, building on that community. I didn't say the most radical and offensive thing I had to say, which is the reason that deaths are going up and we still embrace the disease theory is because the people who are dying live in inner cities and live in poor rural and post-industrial areas. We don't care if they die. And well, we've got to care. Yeah. On that note, we are out of time. I'd like to say that uh, thank you, everybody.